This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by Brandy Jackler. Hi, Brandy. How are you? I am fine, Duncan. How are you today? I'm not too bad. You know, we're kind of just about beginning to emerge from lockdown over here in the UK, I think, kind of gradually starting to get back to some semblance of a, a normal life, if not quite the life that we ever lived before. What about you? How's it, how's it going where you are? Oh, we started coming out of lockdown far too early. Cases are on the rise, thousand new cases in the state every day. So because people won't wear masks, it's great. It's great. Yeah, this is kind of not what we want to be hearing over here. We're just t- today, the day we're recording is I think the first day or maybe the second, maybe the second day today of the pubs being reopened. So we're kind of, uh, we're either heading for that scenario or we're not that kind of slippery slope down to catastrophe, which is appropriate, I suppose, given what we're talking about uh, today, um, a story which involves some very questionable decisions that lead to catastrophic outcomes and multiple deaths, in fact. Um, the topic that we're looking at today is Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's novel, originally published in 1818, famously immortalised on screen, I guess, you know, most famously in the the Boris Karloff uh, version, uh, as featured indeed on Enterprise in the episode Horizon. They they screen that one on movie night and they talk about some of the sequels that they're going to screen on successive nights. But obviously, Frankenstein has had a big influence on science fiction. Some people see it as a kind of horror novel. It's a kind of gothic novel, I suppose. But in some ways, there is a case to be made that Shelley almost invented science fiction in writing that novel as well, insofar as although the science of exactly what Victor Frankenstein is doing and how he's creating this creature or this monster or whatever you want to call it is left relatively vague, there is at least a sense that he is a scientist, that he's approaching it in a kind of methodical way, that he is... um studying, experimenting and so on. So there's a kind of sense of of science leading to this uh, disaster. And I suppose the idea of the, the overreaching scientist, the scientist who kind of doesn't know his place and doesn't know when to stop. And it's certainly a novel that I think has influenced Star Trek and, and the whole of science fiction, but 
specifically has influenced Star Trek in a number of episodes and in a number of ways. But I was interested when I put this out there that this was a topic I was interested in talking about on primitive culture, your hand shot up straight away, Brandy. This was one that obviously uh, you were keen to talk about. So tell me a little bit, what's your kind of background with, uh, with Frankenstein? Why is it that this story is so meaningful to you? Well, I am... First of all, I should explain that I am a goth, which does not mean I always like gloomy, horrible things, but I am attracted to those kind of stories. And uh, I I enjoy examining the darkness where some people may shy away from that and want to shine a light on it. I instead just want to sit in it for a while and see what there is to see as my eyes adjust to the dark. But uh, it's it's something that's just always been part of my life. And I saw the movie when I was very, very young. In fact, I can't even tell you what age I was because I was that young. I'm assuming I was probably around three or four. And uh, I don't remember being frightened by it, which is something to say, because there are some episodes of the original series of Star Trek that terrified me, which were less scary than (laughs) this movie can be. So that was that was my first experience with Frankenstein. And then, of course, Scooby-Doo. There's always, you know, monster episodes in Mm Scooby-Doo. Frankenstein was in one of them, or Frankenstein's monster, I should say. And uh, when I was older, of course, in school, we had to read it for school. But I liked classics. And so I enjoyed reading that. I, you know, I read the version that was out then, which is not the original 1818 text. But later on, I was... Uh, able to go back and read that when that become me- became more widely available again, especially as an ebook. Thank you, Kindle, for having that as an ebook as well. So revisiting that was was very good as well. But I just, you know, there are just so many ways that this story has been reinterpreted over the oh, good grief centuries now. So it's always fascinating to see in what way that changes, because unfortunately, it seems to always be an applicable thing, no matter what time we're living in. There's always some guy who thinks he knows better than everybody else. <laughs> and uh, my husband even actually said, well, it's a story about man trying to uh, get rid of women as far as procreation. I said, what? And, he, and I thought about it. And I thought, yeah, that's true. That actually is true. They're, they're basically getting rid of the female part of that equation and just going straight to being a god and creating. So it's a dangerous, dangerous path to follow. There's definitely a sense of Frankenstein as kind of this, this overreacher. I mean, the, the novel is subtitled The Modern Prometheus. So this mm. idea of, you know, Prometheus being, uh, the one who stole fire from the gods and was kind of punished as a result. So there is a sort of sense that this science is almost blasphemous. And I think yeah. it's interesting thinking about Star Trek. We get that very much when you come to Picard mm. and the idea of the admonition and the, the way that the synths are regarded and this idea that the Romulans have that there's going to be a sort of a, a point where people do something that is that it's immoral essentially it's it's not just that it's going to lead to this catastrophe there's there's something wrong about it you know they call them abominations they have this kind of language about them um one of the the synths um even says at one point you know they they call us monsters and there's always been this question with frankenstein 
colloquially we talk about Frankenstein's monster. That's the that's the word that we use because I suppose that's the term that Frankenstein uses about the mm. being that he creates. Um, he calls it a monster. He calls it a wretch. He calls it a demon, a filthy demon. All these kind of words because he is absolutely repulsed by it, both morally and kind of um, viscerally, you know, physically. But Shelley doesn't call it that in itself. It, it, it doesn't see itself that way necessarily. I mean, it sees itself as disgusting in various ways. But um, another word that is often used for it is the creature. And I was quite struck recently, we had um, over here in the UK, the National Theatre did a production a good few years ago now with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, uh, alternating in the roles of uh, Frankenstein and the creature on alternate nights. And when the lockdown happened over here, they started releasing, they would do one a week, a different show from their kind of back catalogue, which meant that, you know, if you hadn't, as I hadn't managed to go and see this particular one, uh, although it had rave reviews everywhere, uh, you could stream it for that week. Mm. And they actually made both versions. They'd filmed both versions. So you could choose, you could, con- and you could, if you wanted, sort of flip back and forth between the two versions as to who you wanted to be playing the, the creature and who you wanted to be playing uh, Dr. Frankenstein. And I think there was an interesting element there. First of all, that they they very explicitly in that production used the word the creature rather than the monster. But also the fact that it set up this idea that these two are almost equal and opposites somehow. Mm. And it sort of struck me rereading this novel this week. It's almost, it's a stranger, it's almost a novel of two anti-heroes. Because mm. you say on one level, you know, your husband says, oh, this is a story about a scientist trying to, you know, take women out of the equation, trying to do something sort of, however you see that blasphemous, unnatural, you, you know, whatever. But it's as much the story of the creature as it is the story of Dr. Frankenstein, I think. And mm-hmm. what Shelley does brilliantly, really, I think, is that she starts off from Frankenstein's perspective. So we hear about this thing and how revolting and and awful it is and how terrible he feels that he's created it. We hear that it's, you know, murdered members of his family. It's, it's destroying his life basically. But then she manages to bring in the creature's perspective and we get a whole long section in the middle of the novel uh, where the creature basically explains that it started off very much as an innocent, that it was shaped by circumstance, shaped by the cruel uh, treatment sort of heaped on it by human beings, by the fact that no one would accept it, by the fact that everyone looked on it and hated it straight away. And that's kind of driven it to this uh, desperation, to these kind of awful acts. And I think it's a very Star Trek strategy in some ways, what Shelley does to kind of create this monster and then humanise it. She, at one point, the, the creature even says uh, when he's explaining to Frankenstein that he means no harm, that he won't, you know, if he does what he wants, which in this case is to create another one, a, a kind of counterpart, a, a wife or whatever for it. Um, he'll go away and be harmless. And he says, the image I present to you is peaceful and human. Uh, so it, the creature is literally kind of humanized in, in that moment, in a sense. And it's exactly what you see over and over again in Star Trek that you get, you know, the, the alien monster who is the kind of enemy, the mortal enemy. And then you have a version that can be kind of humanized. So Hugh, the Borg might be the most obvious example in this context, because the Borg are a bit like Frankenstein's monster or creature or whatever we want to call it, sort of physically revolting and slightly horrifying. And they have this kind of zombie-like element and so on. And yet you can have a story there where one Borg, uh, suddenly becomes known as an individual, becomes known as, you know, someone that maybe suffers, that has their own thoughts, their own feelings and so on. And our kind of feelings towards them can change just as Picard's do in that episode. Yeah. And the thing that humanity is very, very infamous for is judging on appearance. 
And therefore, anyone with an appearance different than the quote-unquote norm that has been established by who knows how that gets established. It's just we come together as a community and decide this is normal, this is not. And unfortunately, that causes these sort of things. It couldn't have helped that Frankenstein abandoned his creature the moment it came to life. It's just, really, dude? You're you're basically an absentee father here. You chose to bring this life into the world, and then you absolve yourself of any responsibility for it. That is, ooh, that's despicable. So it's no wonder that this creature doesn't have a great beginning. And yes, there are certain things. It's, there's the whole nature versus nurture argument. But I think, yes, you can be, you can have a search, certain nature when you're born. However, I put it to everyone that how you are nurtured has more to do with how you turn out in life than what you began as. So it's really, honestly, not necessarily the creature's fault that it is the way it is just like it's not a borg drone's fault that it is the way it Mm. is it had no choice in that it was something before that it was an organism prior to being assimilated and removed from the collective can become that organism again and oh gosh racism toward the borg it's just ooh, the xbs that just really hurts me really hurts me Absolutely. And you even get in Picard, um, that line Picard has where he says, you know, uh, now people can see them as victims, not as monsters. And yeah. I suppose that, it, you know, that was a big gesture that uh, the Picard show, I think, was doing in the presentation of the XBs. I mean, we had had it before, say, with you. But I mean, equally, the Borg, generally speaking, yeah, you might feel sorry for individuals being assimilated or whatever, but they still had this kind of... It's interesting when you say what's, you know, you were saying, was that film scary? Um, the Borg are pretty scary. Oh, the I Borg think. are I mean, Star Trek, not, not always, <laughs> but you know, when, when they manage it, they, they really manage it. Mm-hmm. You know, something like First Contact, the Borg in that are properly scary, I think. Yes. Uh, the kind of horror element is done well. But I suppose this kind of is part of the question with Frankenstein. I mean, I have to say, I watched the 1931 film for the first time this week. Oh, really? And I wow. found it interesting and I appreciated it. I did not at any point find it scary. Mm-hmm. I also watched the Kenneth Branner movie, uh, which, was sort of famously criticised for not being scary. Uh, although it is quite, there is quite a lot of blood and guts and all that sort of thing in there. Hmm. And I have to say, I didn't hate the Branagh film as much as most people did. I sort of think it's, it's very much what you get if you give someone with such a kind of OTT, melodramatic, operatic kind of style, a story like this, it all gets very big and grand and kind of um, intense somehow. Uh, but I have to say, I didn't find that one's... I think it's true that that one is also not particularly scary. But then I sort of wonder, you know, is this a novel about... I mean, on one level, yes, it is a kind of horror story. It is a kind of horror novel. But is it really meant to scare you? Because I think it's more... I think maybe what Shelley's doing is a little bit more sophisticated than that somehow. I mean, it, it's quite a complex novel. It's quite a sort of ambiguous novel. It's quite a kind of, um, I, I mean, the ideas are shocking, even today, to be honest, you know, robbing graves and kind of reanimating the dead. Or, you know, these things, they, they break various taboos. They're shocking mm. in that sense. Yes. Um, and at the time, they must have been even more shocking. And I think that's one of the reasons there were changes between these two versions of, of the novel, you know, the one that was initially published and then the later version. Right. But, um, I don't know. 
I, I don't I personally I don't even I don't particularly find the novel scary either compared to you know that are there even kind of classic like the turn of the screw for example or a ghost story like that there are things that i find more chilling but i don't think that's necessarily a problem i don't think it necessarily is a bad thing if frankenstein or adaptations of it are not scary because i don't really think that's the point and i was quite surprised in the enterprise episode trip keeps saying to Paul, oh you're going to love this film it's going to be you know this is a we're doing a real horror uh sort of feature here on enterprise you know in, in movie night or whatever it's gonna you know these are the three of the best horror films they're really scary movies and i was sort of thinking really you know i mean and and in the you know whatever it is 20 what are they 22nd century people are going to be uh <laughs> thinking this surely the appeal of watching it is kind of you know a it's 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 an impressive film and it's an interesting piece of history and b um there's something quite kind of there's something appealing about watching something that old and sort of seeing the, the creakiness of it but also seeing the ingenuity of it and and so on that kind of thing but i don't think it's that it's going to completely suck you along and and terrify you and take you on this kind of uh you, you know horrific thrill ride in that sense so but i'm interested i don't know i mean have you ever seen a production of Frankenstein that genuinely scared you no. or, or, or are those the emotions that it's meant to be evoking? Cause my feeling is really, they're not it, the emotions it's meant to be evoking are more pity, compassion, uh, shock, you, you know, kind of, um, I don't know. Do you know what it, does that make any sense? No, it absolutely it feels like maybe sense. there's a bit of a misunderstanding of what this story is. And maybe that's because it's been part of the kind of universal horror canon and, and, and then the hammer horror canon. And it's, it's, it's been kind of packaged as part of that genre. Mm. Uh, and in some ways, maybe it's not quite the best fit. It's really not. I think that for the time, it was very shocking as far as the screen version of it. I'm sure the book was as well. Mm -hmm. But it's not about the horror. It's never been about the horror. Because honestly, if anything, it's a tragedy. It's Mm. basically a science fiction tragedy. Because there is no good ending for either Frankenstein or the creature. There, there's, there's no happily ever after that comes out of this. And all of these things that could have been avoided along the way had Dr. Frankenstein taken responsibility for what he had done and, you know, nurtured the creature instead of abandoning it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really, it's a moral story. It's an ethical story, but it, in the, in the end, it's, it's a tragedy and it's a lesson of, Kind of a don't mess with things that you don't fully understand. <laughs> Maybe creating another being isn't the greatest idea. Maybe you should actually, you know, do some research and, and have some more experiments before you decide that you're just going to create life. And I suppose it's also, I mean, it, it it's a story that has a lot of kind of cultural, uh, cachet in a way mm. it's it's also almost partly because of that 1931 movie in particular i think it can almost be sort of memed or be kind of uh broken down into these particular tropes i mean you know there's the famous it's alive moment which i think we get to see even in enterprise there's also this very key moment which recurs often when the story is adapted or kind of echoed or borrowed from which is the the kind of moment of realization that maybe 
you know, maybe I've done something truly awful. Have I, I've, I've committed this kind of unforgivable sin almost. Um, and you even get that in, say, in Voyager and the episode prototype, mm. which I think borrows from Frankenstein to a certain extent, even down to things like the fact, and, and this hadn't struck me until I was watching it this week. I'd never really noticed the uh, androids in that episode are much taller than average human beings. And one of the things, obviously, we know about Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's creature, which I have to say, obviously, the National Theatre were not able to reproduce by having these two actors swapping parts, <laughs> is that it's it's supposed to be eight feet tall. You know, it's supposed to be kind of abnormally large. And, and they even managed to do that in that episode. But the thing that really struck me made me think, OK, this is, this is a Frankenstein episode, is that moment when Bellana realises that uh these robots um actually killed the human or not the humans the you know the, the organics yeah. who who created them and she has the line my god what have i done which is such a kind of classic sort of frankenstein line quite an odd line for a star trek character in a sense who you know as, as far as we know uh, she certainly doesn't believe in the klingon gods i don't think she believes in you, you know mm-hmm. it's a quite an old-fashioned expression i suppose to have someone in star trek saying my god what have i done but it's absolutely kind of putting a pin in that um, link there and that kind of uh, history behind that story. Um, and it's quite an interesting one because I think she does express very much that ambivalence, which is at the heart of the Frankenstein story. And we get it even right to the end of that episode prototype because Janeway says to her when she she literally stabs uh, her creature in the chest mm-hmm. quite violently in order to kill it. Um, and Janeway says to her, that must have been a very difficult thing to do. You know, you kind of birthed that creature in a sense you know you gave life to that being uh, and to snuff that out again is is inevitably very hard and i think that kind of ambivalence is also there in you know frankenstein who's this man who desperately wants to do this thing partly he wants to do it because no one's done it before and it's it's that kind of idea of the scientist it's the jurassic park thing you know yeah trying to work out if you could rather than if you should mm-hmm. um but then almost immediately in frankenstein's case he flips and he, he has a nervous breakdown, basically. And then, you know, he's out of action for months, I think, during which the creature is kind of having its formative experience. Basically, Frankenstein is kind of laid up in bed because he's so, so horrified at the realisation of what he's done and this terrible thing as he thinks that he's sort of unleashed on the world. And part of the tragedy, I suppose, is that actually uh, the creature is very benign, mm-hmm. you know, although it looks repulsive to most people. Uh, it's quite sweet. It, you know, it goes and it... Um, hangs out and watches this family and sort of observes this family uh, and it does good deeds for them. It starts, you know, chopping wood for them and trying to sort of do them little favours. It gets hold of literature and it absorbs any literature. It reads Paradise Lost. It reads Plutarch. You know, it tries to educate itself. It's very much uh, a kind of, actually, I mean, you know, talking about Star Trek, it's it's the kind of, if Picard could, it, it, there's an element there of, you know, data kind of wanting to play Henry V and read Shakespeare and read Dickens and all of that. You know, the creature is very much like that. It's kind of a blank slate and it wants to absorb all of these noble sort of, uh, you know, cultural texts and kind of works and so on uh, and become a good person, basically. But there is no one there to support that. And because of the way that it looks... Uh, obviously, you know, people are, are repulsed by it. People react against it. People attack it physically and, and try to shun it and push it away. Um, and it is, I mean, it is an amazing novel, I think, just purely in terms of the kind of empathy that Shelley has for this being that is so kind of repugnant to everyone else. Um, you know, and you sort of wonder where did that come from and what was that, um, that sort of inspired that for her? But she has, that, 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 that I think is what makes the novel so much more 
than it might have been is that incredible sense of empathy for this being who, as you say, is, you know, is kind of a victim or is kind of suffering. Yeah, it's, well, having a disfigured protagonist is not, or anti-hero in this case, antagonist, they're kind of both antagonists, <laughs> but because honestly, both of them are telling their stories to a third party who could, who starts and ends the book. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are other things that come to mind where something is judged completely by appearance alone. And actually they're quite wonderful and beautiful, like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, so there, there are echoes like that in other literature. However, I don't, think that there's anything else that came before this novel that quite reached this particular, reached this height, I guess is the best way to say it, that combined these elements in a way that no one ever had. Because that's that's the funny thing about works of fiction and creative works and stuff like that. It's all been done. However, when you find that way to recombine it in a way that no one's ever done it before, it becomes something new because there, there's never going to be another color that, that we've never seen before. There's never going to be another note that we haven't heard before. It's all already out there, but the creative part comes in combining these elements in a way that hasn't been done before. And that's what Mary Shelley did. And sadly still had to publish it anonymously because a woman writing a story? Oh, no, 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 we can't have that. And especially a story like this, which is so shocking and so kind of grotesque and, uh, you know, dark. And, you know, there is a kind of, uh, it is a gothic story. It for, is very... You know, I mean, literally a, a gothic story, um, you know, in that sense as well. But it is a story that I think it goes far beyond those kind of generic trappings in a way what you know whether you think they're the trappings of uh gothic fiction of horror of uh, uh science fiction you know kind of um it sort of goes beyond all of that because of that insistence on kind of complicating things and and sort of not giving you a simple answer i mean it is mm-hmm. as you say it's basically a novel with two anti-heroes neither one of them is really in the right necessarily i mean you know the monster the, i call it the monster the creature uh is 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 not a monster to begin with but does become increasingly monstrous insofar as the things that it does to frankenstein you know the the murders that it commits it not only murders for example his brother a child uh but then pins the blame on someone else mm. a beloved family friend who is then hanged i think for uh for the crime so yeah. You know, it becomes quite sort of devious and quite kind of, um, it does, you know, become a kind of monstrous figure. And there is certainly this sense of it sort of stalking Frankenstein. It is almost like this, um, figure of doom that comes and it makes this comment to him at one point because he won't create this bride for it, this, this other creature. Uh, it says, you know, watch for me on your wedding night. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's, it's like this kind of doom laden thing that's going to come back and haunt him and, and ruin his life. Um, and it is quite striking in the book, more so than in certainly any of the Star Trek adaptations that we might think of, the amount of death that goes along in this story. I mean, the number of people who whose lives are lost as a result of Frankenstein's uh, decision to try and, and meddle in this way. It's, it's not just that it destroys his own life. It kind of destroys everyone around him. Mm. Um, and I was quite struck. I saw years ago a woman who had written a biography of Mary Shelley talking about it. And the thing that struck me 
from her talk, most of which I, I can't say I remember many of the details, but I was just very struck that in her own biography, she had lost so many people in her family. And what this woman was saying basically was, you know, this was someone who understood loss and understood you know, death in a way that was unusual, maybe for someone of, certainly from our perspective, unusual for someone who was uh, in her teens when she wrote this. I think, you know, she was very young when she wrote this novel, but she had experienced uh, a lot of loss and a lot of death. And there is this kind of sense of, you know, for Frankenstein, it's just the losses just pile up and pile up, you know, his best friend, his wife, uh, you, you know, everyone around him seems to get sucked in and destroyed um, by this thing that he's done and by this, this, you know, creature that he's made. And there is something quite, I suppose that is horror, but it's horror of a kind of, it it is almost a a psychological horror somehow, as much as the kind of visceral horror of, um, I mean, the the creature doesn't kill Frankenstein in the end. Neither of them kills the other one. You sort of expect that one of them is going to defeat the other, but in fact, they both just sort of end up dying. Mm. I mean, Frankenstein dies and then the, the creature says basically, well, I don't know what to do now. I'm going to go off and, you know, find somewhere and die. And that's basically it. There's, they are sort of locked in this almost eternal yin and yang struggle. And this was another thing, actually, that the National Theatre play brought out brilliantly, I think. Uh, it just ended with the two of them just sort of going off for another round of this sort of um, almost perpetual feud, it seemed like, between the two of them that was never going to be resolved and was only going to bring chaos and destruction to everyone around them. It is a very, and maybe those elements are the ones that don't translate so easily to other media, whether that's popular 1930s films or or Star Trek episodes or whatever. (laughs) I feel like when it gets adapted, there always is a little bit more of a sense of an ending. But it's interesting you say it's a tragedy. I feel like even if we look at Star Trek episodes that are influenced by this, it is usually a tragic ending. It usually Mm. ends badly uh, for at least one of the two characters, if not both. A lot of the time, uh, the... The creations happen kind of against the creator's will. This, like, they don't want to do it, but they are forced to do it in some way. And, but then once they get going, as is the case with Dr. Bashir, it's like, okay, well, well, we can do this. And this is something that's never been done before. And I have no idea how it's going to turn out. And there's this part of him that's excited. But there's still this part of him of, uh, we should not be doing this. And so those, those two sides of him are at war with each other. But, uh, Frankenstein never seems to experience that prior to creating the creature. He's just all gung ho. He never stops to think if he should do it, just whether he could do it. And then once he's got it, uh, he freaks out and abandons it. And yeah. That's that's I that's something I think that they can't really portray with our Starfleet characters in Star Trek because mm. that's just not how they would act for the most part. So sometimes you've got to bring in that third party, like with uh, or, or or a complete accident, as in uh, the Voyager episode episode Drone, where um, Seven's nanoprobes. Uh, nanites combine with the doctor's hollow emitter because of a transporter thing. How many things have happened because of transporter accidents? <laughs> um, I mean, it's not completely an accident, but it, so much as nobody was killed. But, you know, all of a sudden, this new life form has birthed itself more than anything else. And 
yeah, what do you do then? The thing is, is that they actually take responsibility for it. When they really aren't mm. responsible, it was a freak accident, but they take responsibility for it and do their best to shape this new life into something other than what it is meant to become as far as its actual DNA and genetic makeup. They kind of are making the case for nurture over nature, uh, you know, which you could say is the same case that Mary Shelley is making. But that absolutely is Janeway's attitude in that episode. Tuvok is sort of saying, uh, do you think maybe we should pull the plug on this? Janeway is kind of very much saying, no, you know, we can shape this being basically if we are kind to it, if we show it the best parts of ourselves. I mean, it's this very idealistic uh, Starfleet philosophy. If we show it how to behave and teach it right from wrong it will be on our side. You know, it will be one of the angels. It will not be a kind of monster. There's always this kind of theme in these stories, that, you know, because the creature reads Paradise Lost and identifies with, uh, you know, with Lucifer, one of the fallen angels. I suppose there's always that question over, you know, not only Frankenstein's soul is kind of in the balance as he damned himself, but, you know, the sort of creature's innocence and the creature's guilt, in a sense, in, in, the, in the crimes that it's committed. But Janeway's attitude is absolutely very much, if we treat it well and show it the best of ourselves... That's, that's what it will become. You, you know, we can kind of mold this. It is a bit like, and there is an element in that story. Uh, the, the drone follows seven around the ship, almost like a kind of baby duckling, doesn't it? You know, there is this sort of sense of it's being imprinted on. Mm. And it's also very much, it, it's the kind of creature before it starts killing people in Shelley's novel, if you know what I mean. It has that thirst for knowledge. It's desperate to download as much information as possible. It keeps asking for more, 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 just as Shelley's creature, you know, reads Paradise Lost, reads Goethe, reads Plutarch's Lives, you, you know, is kind of absorbing anything that it can get its hands on, uh, teaches itself to read, teaches itself uh, language, you know, becomes this quite sophisticated, learned character, in a sense, learns about the world, learns about geography, history, politics, all these things, um, purely by observing this family and kind of eavesdropping and listening in and, and getting hold of the old book and teaching itself to read them and so on. So there is absolutely that sense in the Voyager episode, it, it it's kind of as benign a being as it could be. And it, it's very much a decent, uh, decent creature. Mm. But then there's this tragic end for it that because of the Borg being desperate to get their hands on it and the technology that it represents, it has to sacrifice itself. Um, and it says in this kind of heartbreaking way at the end, it says, I should not exist. I was never meant to be. And there again, there is this kind of sense. Yes, it's not, it's not one overreaching scientists fault. It's not that someone made it and they shouldn't have morally, but there's this kind of sense of it's, it's life is impossible. It shouldn't have been made. It kind of violates something. In this case, it violates kind of, you know, I don't know, the temporal prime directive or however you, <laughs> however you want to define it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of creating an issue with this technology that is out of time and its desirability as a sort of target for reassimilation uh, or assimilation in its case. But there's that sense that kind of it can't be. So it has to have this tragic outcome. It has to disappear again. And obviously, from the point of view of Voyager, which, as we know, you know, has the big red reset button. Uh, but frankly, any episodic Star Trek series, they're not going to keep that 29th century drone on board uh, for the foreseeable future because they're going to have the same problem they would have had with, uh, you know, the Q that became mortal mm. and that they were going to keep on board. And he also ended up killing himself because... These characters are sort of overpowered to the extent that the show can't really cope with them. So they sort of have to have a tragic end one way or another and disappear. But it's interesting you mentioned Bashir as well, because I think in some ways Bashir 
is a bit of a Dr. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. They could easily have played that episode, Life Support, with Bashir being quite gung-ho. And we would have bought it, given everything yeah. we know about Bashir's character, certainly in season three, as, you know, yeah, Bashir needs to calm down. He needs to stop trying to impress everyone. He needs to stop going on about, you know, the mark he missed in his exam or whatever it was. You know, he's trying to prove himself too much. But they didn't. They actually put Bashir in the role of the very responsible doctor saying, I don't think this is the right thing to do. You know, yes, we can keep treating, we can keep doing this, we can do more and more and more. But um, this is, you know, I'm advising against it. I think this is wrong. I think we should let nature take its course. I think we should kind of slow things down a bit here. And I think that was quite an interesting decision to do a sort of Frankenstein story and have this character who is this kind of eager, young, you know, slightly hasty uh doctor character but actually to have him be the one sort of putting the brakes on it and other people whether it's Kai Wynn or whether it's Kira saying no do more do more go further go further keep pushing the envelope keep keep you know heading slightly further down that slippery slope um you know don't worry about it basically yeah I I do really enjoy the conversation that he has with Kai Wynn and basically you know calls her out And at the end of the conversation, she says, you know, I will remember what you said here today, doctor. And he says, yes, I'll remember what you said, too. So (laughs) he's not taking Mm. crap from anybody. But um, it's I love that that's how they portrayed it, because it could so easily have gone that other direction, especially with everything that they've given us of Bashir up to this point. And I thought that he handled it with great maturity, which is not what I was expecting. And I think that was actually a really big turning point for me as far as really coming to love that character was this episode, which was a very hard episode because again, tragic ending, you know, and I'm, I'm a crier. I cry at everything. So yeah, that one, that's one of those that has me in tears uh, <laughs> more than once. And it's just, it's just hard. Although I'll be honest with you guys, I never liked um, Beryl. This is undoubtedly the best Beryl episode, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of hard to argue with that one. Uh, Nothing became him like his leaving the show, you know. But I think you're right. You know, it is quite an intense episode. And I think part of that is because... As much as there's this sort of science fiction element with, yes, you know, replace his brain and replace the other half of his brain and, you know, who is he going to be and all this sort of thing. There's also quite a relatable element of it in there that anyone who has had family members or even pets, to be honest, uh, th- these are the kind of conversations that you often end up having, uh, especially with pets, I would say. Um, mm. But but also, you know, sometimes tragically, you know, with family members as well of kind of the doctor sort of the, the the patient's loved one saying as Kira is do more, do everything, try, ev- you, you know, do everything you can basically. And the doctor kind of saying, well, you know, all right, if that's, you know, if you insist, but um, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And, and, you know, famously lots of doctors when they get sick, refuse various treatments that are available actually say, to be honest, if I'm going to die, I would rather just die rather than go, you know, go through rather than throw everything that medical science has at it, mm-hmm. which in some ways can make things worse. And in, from Bashir's point of view, in the end, he kind of basically refuses. He says he won't do the last, whatever the last procedure is they ask him to do. He says, if you do that, this, you know, this won't be burial anymore. Uh, he says he wants him to die like a man, not like a machine. So there's that kind of, um, I, I think one of the reasons the episode is so powerful is that it feels quite grounded in quite realistic sort of human experience. On the other hand, it does also have this kind of slightly mad sci-fi conceit 
I mean, there is a kind of Frankenstein uh, nod, I think, in the fact that it's it's all about ele- electricity. They hit him with excess electrical stimulation is the term they use. So it's, it's, it is almost like the electricity being sort of zapped into this creature uh, and it reanimates the dead. Mm. Um, and they do slightly ghoulishly replace, you know, not only replace all these organs, replace half his brain. Then he comes out sort of seeming slightly lobotomized. I mean, there are these kind of science fiction stories you know, Spock's brain would be another one. Oh yeah. Um, that really lean on this idea of, uh, brain, uh, <laughs> the idea of, of brains being transferred and moved around and so on. And actually the 1931 Frankenstein, uh, has quite a lot on this because there's this whole sort of subplot that never seems to go anywhere about the two brains and there's a good brain and a bad brain and the creature ends up with the wrong brain mm. because the clumsy assistant, you know, drops the right one on the floor <laughs> or whatever. But this sort of, Obviously, it's a bit of a sci-fi trope if you think of like the brains in jars. I suppose it's the idea that some kind of essence or consciousness or something could be detached from the body, could be kind of disembodied. And equally that these, you know, one person's brain could be put in another person's body or that the one brain could be taken here and put in here. Um, I don't know. I I do feel like, I, I don't know if Spock's brain is exactly a Frankenstein story, but I feel there's a sort of, there's an element of that there because there's that kind of, you know, connective tissue, for want of a better word, of the the kind of... Tran- the, the, I suppose these sort of phobias about transplants and so on is another way of looking at it. Um, you, you know, and this idea of a body that is a kind of composite... I mean, we get it again with the Vidians, you know, constantly transplanting organs and, and oh, sort yeah. of mixing things up and the kind of body horror around the Vidians. You know, they are sort of turning themselves a bit into Frankenstein creatures by constantly replacing in this quite unsuccessful way different bits of their crumbling bodies obviously frankenstein's doing something slightly different but he's taking all this kind of dead matter and reanimating it trying to add life to it oh the vidians oh yeah um i actually recently watched the episode where the vidians first appear because i'm going through voyager with uh, the delta flyers podcast which uh, if you haven't listened to that it's so it's so great i love it uh but yeah just And they've been battling this for centuries, and they haven't figured out a way to cure it. And so they just keep stealing organs and adapting them for their own bodies. And, you know, they'll do anything to stay alive as long as they can. And after, after centuries of that, when that's all you know, of course, that's what they're going to keep doing. And it makes me wonder, are they still examining why this is happening trying to find out how it started you know that that's your fir- that was my first thought the first time i saw the vidians mm-hmm. i just thought did you just give up on actually finding a cure or you know cuz i can understand trying to stay alive long enough to find a cure but they were just doing this now to just exist period it's sort of become a, a habit almost hasn't it and, yeah. and it is that idea of kind of breaking a taboo i mean in this case they're live organs i suppose although i think mm-hmm. they say they try to take them from dead people if possible with frankenstein it's more the kind of grave robbing in it but again it's kind of uh, you know crossing these lines crossing these kind of moral lines so there's that idea i suppose of breaking this taboo around the boundary between the living and the dead insofar as actually going and robbing graves and so on is immoral from the point of view of the living uh and i suppose from the memory of the dead in that it kind of there's something inappropriate there's something kind of unspeakable there 
There's also this kind of more general idea that I think we see in a lot of these stories about trying to cheat death. Mm. And this is something that kind of, again, ties in maybe to this idea of Shelley as this woman who'd experienced a lot of loss and a lot of death in her own life. And the fact that Victor Frankenstein has lost his mother, for example, uh, at kind of a key moment. And there's this element and actually the Branagh film for its various faults, quite helpfully, I think, sort of, you know, pins this down a little bit that Frankenstein has witnessed death, he's experienced death, and he's determined to sort of conquer death. So there is a kind of, there's a psychology to it, as well as this idea of just the scientist who wants to do whatever can be done. There's the kind of psychology of someone who has suffered uh, loss and wants to kind of make it so that that will never happen again. And we get that often in Star Trek, um, in stories of these kind of mad scientists one way or another nearly always men i think i couldn't think of an example of a woman mad scientist and i think that is kind of interesting in terms of this idea of the kind of promethean overreaching hero but these men who want to conquer death one way or another so um the schizoid man you've got the the guy ira graves in the schizoid man who wants to transfer his consciousness to data and doesn't really care that you know that that's maybe not fair on data going back all the way to the original series, What a Little Girl's Made Of, which has various kind of Frankenstein echoes, I think, not least the fact that it takes place on a sort of Arctic planet. Yeah. And the frame narrative of Frankenstein is about this polar expedition and this Arctic explorer, who's the one who is actually writing all of this down because he's the one who encounters Frankenstein and Frankenstein tells him the story. So there's that kind of hint there. Then you've got in that episode, this character Rook, who is this giant uh, kind of monster, effectively played by the guy who also played Lurch in the Adams Family. Oh, yes. And Lurch in the Adams Family is kind of a bit of a Frankensteinish uh homage, I think, you know, uh, another one of these sort of giant looming, uh, kind of slightly monstrous, but potentially quite gentle characters, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um so, so you've got that kind of link there and you've got his goal really is to cheat death. It's to, you know, download everyone like, like we end up with in Picard with Picard ultimately, you know, download everyone into an Android body and, and kind of, um, in that way, you know, move the human race forward into the kind of next phase of existence where we don't have to be defined by mortality anymore. So I suppose that's the other element is, is Frankenstein's goals are sort of doubly blasphemous in a sense, insofar as they offend, they offend the kind of human sensibilities around death insofar as digging up dead bodies is just not acceptable in most cultures and kind of doing stuff with them and trying to bring them back to life is sort of horrific on a sort of human level. But they also offend this kind of broader morality around recognizing what is natural and what are the kind of limits to, to human existence or to human life. And the fact that, you know, everyone is born and everyone dies and to try and change that is somehow blasphemous or is somehow kind of wrong. And this idea, I suppose, that the only person who should create is God in that kind of Christian context. So I think it's interesting that you get these characters and as I said, they nearly always, or I think always are men who are one way or another trying to cheat death in Star Trek. We even get the kind of comedy version in DS9 with that guy um, in In the Cards who... um is again creating these kind of bizarre machines and, and thinks he can sort of revive, uh, the cells within the body on this, you know, on the kind of cellular level, he can kind of cheat death and kind of keep, keep people going on forever. And there is something that is sort of, uh, there's something kind of wrong about that. It's almost in the same way as in the original series, you always get Kirk saying, you know, these, um, 
societies that are run by a computer or something there's always there's this kind of this is wrong you have to do the you know you have to be human and being human means you know making mistakes you know scratching your knees now and then uh making bad decisions all these sort of things but being human also means accepting mortality at some level which of course ironically is what we find out in the wrath of khan kirk has never quite been able to do (laughs) um but there's so there's this kind of recurring idea of these these scientists particularly men not being quite willing to to stop at that point you know always trying to push beyond what possibly shouldn't be pushed yeah and they do address that in star trek picard because data is living in a simulation uh you know part of his uh positronic net had been salvaged, which is how they created these other synths. Spoilers if you haven't seen Picard. <laughs> but he he says that the one thing that he has learned about, I mean, the most important thing he's learned about humanity is that death is what gives life meaning. And if there is no end, then what's the point of anything? Really? And actually, that's something that they explored in the series finale of The Good Place as well. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's a thing that we humans just can't quite grasp. And I don't know why, because if something is finite, that means you know you only have a certain amount of time and you are more, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? motivated there we go to use that time wisely but if you know that you have forever i mean why bother doing anything why why create anything why you know go to different places i mean eventually you're going to see it all anyway and if you're the only person that has that eternal life and you keep watching everyone around you die that sounds like torture so wouldn't want to be a vampire wouldn't want to outlive everyone that i know would not i don't want eternal life per se i yes i don't know what's going to happen when i die i'm an agnostic sort of person but at the same time uh i also wouldn't want to be kept alive artificially i guess it's a difficult proposition at best but it's things are not beautiful because they last knowing that those beautiful flowers that bloom every spring are not going to be there for the entire year are what makes them more treasured. So having something that never ends, do we really value it anymore? Now, you see, I, I, I've i heard those arguments many times. I've heard <laughs> data making them in Picard. I understand all of that. Like on one level, I recognize that. I can see that's true. I think it would be a problem if everyone lived forever mm. because they'd just be loads and loads of people with nothing to do uh i can see that you you know one set of people kind of has to make space for the next set of people and so on on the other hand there's a part of me that i think sympathizes a bit more with Riker in generations where he he says personally i plan on living forever you know there's that kind of personal element where you sort of think i don't know I i can understand it a bit more i can understand the desire to kind of uh push these things uh, partly you know because and i can understand the desire in that episode of ds9 with with dr bashir for kira to say on behalf of her lover you know i want i want him to be around i don't care you know and to sort of not see the wood for the trees she's almost saying i don't care how 
changed he is. I don't care how much he's not himself. You know, it's, it's some, a small part of him is still there. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can, I, you know, I can understand that. I mean, I, as I say, you know, even with a pet, I mean, I had a cat that was hit by a car mm. and we rushed the cat to the vet and had us, and, and I think there was nothing, to be honest, I think they knew there was nothing they could do, but because we were so upset and we, and, you know, and the cat was still alive when we brought him in, if you know what I mean, mm. they were kind of, um, he was sort of, the vet was sort of saying, well, I can try this thing. I can try that thing. And I think at one point he sort of, said something along the lines of, but, you know, even if it works, this, this quality of life is going to be bad or whatever. But we were just so focused on, you can save the cat, you know, save the cat, save the cat, um, that we weren't really listening to any of that. And it didn't work and the cat died anyway. But I mean, I think in some ways, when I think back on that, I think I'm glad that it, well, I, I don't know what I'm glad, but I, I slightly got the impression that maybe we should have been listening to the vet more who was kind of saying, actually, at this point, it doesn't matter if I bring the cat back to life. Effectively, you know, if I save the cat's life, the life it's going to be saved for is not going to be worth living. And that is almost going to be a worse situation to be in somehow. Mm. But, you know, that's the situation Kira is in in that episode is basically saying, you know, I don't want to accept that this person is is dying. I don't want to accept my partner is kind of beyond help in any meaningful way. So, so I suppose there's that kind of on a human level, you can understand the desire. I don't, you know, I don't want to die. I don't want to, uh, give up all this stuff. So I can sort of understand these scientists who are, are reach, whether it's, uh, the Sung in Picard, who has clearly built that golem for himself originally, because he, he said he himself was he implied quite heavily. He was terminally ill, whether it's Ira Graves, whether it's, um, you, you know, these other characters that we see in Star Trek from time to time, who are always these kind of, older men, uh, you know, realising their days are numbered. And unlike Picard, who actually accepts his illness with great equanimity and is very kind of calm and sort of measured about it and basically says, you know, look, don't make a fuss. Kind of, I've had a long life. This is a, a reasonable thing to happen. I'm kind of at peace with it. You, you know, I suppose it's that thing of the, the people who can't make peace with that, who kind of, and who have the scientific or the technical ability to try and do something about it. And I suppose that is the tragedy of it. It's, that's another element of the tragedy is the tragedy of not accepting these kind of boundaries because ultimately it, it's, it's almost a bit like one of those sort of, uh, fate or, you know, one of those time travel stories or something, you know, whatever you try to do, ultimately it's going to kind of fail. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. never really going to totally succeed. Except, of course, I suppose when we get to Picard and, uh, suddenly that story is given a slightly different inflection because it seems like a pretty great thing that Picard has cheated death and found this new body. And, <laughs> you know, suddenly Star Trek having seemingly been quite anti all these life prolongation technologies and so on and, and the mad scientists who create them. Uh, now, you know, we're pretty grateful when one of them comes along just at the right moment when we need it. So I don't know. That's a kind of interesting. There is no. In Picard, there is no tragedy in that sense. Um, and I do find it quite strange in that last episode of the first season of Picard that you've got simultaneously data making this very strong case for how important it is to die when your time, when it's your time to go, go basically, you know, and not to live on in this sort of half, halfway house kind of life, this sort of not, not, not quite real life. And then you've got Picard who's sort of in a fairly similar situation and yet does go on and and of course he doesn't have any choice in the matter it's not like they ask him uh he's dead at the time 
but it's sort of a strange case. It sort of feels a little bit like Star Trek's trying to have its cake and eat it there. It's trying to make a happy ending out of this kind of story that is uh, intrinsically, as you say, kind of tragic and unhappy. Yeah, but at the same time, Picard is not going to live forever in that body because they gave him the amount of time that he would have had without the condition killing him earlier. So he and he he doesn't know exactly how much time he has because they don't confirm it at any point. He's just like, well, I was hoping for, you know, another 15 years. 20? Anyone? Anyone? And they're not even, they're not saying anything. So it's still not infinite life. He still has an end date. And so I think that's the caveat so that we don't go, wait a minute. All this stuff that you've been saying all these decades and now you do, okay, he is going to die actually at some point. Just not quite when we were expecting. Yep. You know, which is a relief uh, because it did kind of look like Picard was heading to being a one-season show uh, for, for most of that season, didn't it? I mean, you know, certainly towards the end, it kind of looked like we were heading that way. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see in season two, I think, how much... Because it sort of feels at the very end of that season like it's given him a new lease of life almost. And somehow the, the kind of crotchety, gravelly old Picard uh, might be getting a little bit closer to the fairly sprightly Patrick Stewart, who's still, you know, doing this punishing shooting schedule and, and recording sonnets all through lockdown and writing his memoirs. Do you know what I mean? He seems like a very active, uh, busy guy. I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll sort of see how that plays out and whether there's any hangover. And interesting, I think they've kind of hinted Brent Spiner might well be back for season two. So maybe there is more to be done with that Sung character. I mean, Brent Spiner's played quite a few of these mad scientists, at least three Sung three. mad scientists, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, in Next Gen, in Enterprise, and now this one in Picard. Um, and it's kind of interesting, I suppose, sort of comparing them. They, they, they all have this very fatherly quality to them, I suppose, which I think is interesting when you think of Frankenstein. I mean, you talked about is, is Frankenstein basically the ultimate neglectful father? Literally, he creates life, has a nervous breakdown and disappears for several months. And meanwhile, his child's, you know, upbringing is, is, goes to hell. Obviously, in, in these stories, you've always got this kind of playing out this version of the child searching for the father. Um, and you had that in Next Gen with Data and Sung. Um, you, you know, you had the episode where he's having dreams and he has this kind of vision of his, his father talking to him and, and, and all this stuff. And, and Worf says to him, Oh, you know, you're so lucky. This is such a precious, uh, thing to have this kind of link to your father. And obviously in brothers, you have, um, he and law both go and find Sung and have that kind of moment. And for data, it's this quite significant moment of, you know, asking all these questions is, I mean, with data, of course, it's the most genteel. It's the most kind of next gen version of, the quite anguished conversations that happen in Frankenstein, where the, the creature is kind of saying, you know, why did you create me? Why did you do that? You, you know, how could you do this? What were you thinking? Kind of, you, you know, it sort of has questions that need answering, uh, but they're very anguished. They're very uh, dark and, and tortured questions. With Data, it's it, it's the most kind of polite version of that. He he says, I wrote it down. He says, may I ask you a question, sir? Why did you create me? And Sung responds in this kind of gnomic way. Why does a painter paint? And they have this kind of great conversation about what it means to create something that will outlive you and, and having children and, and is data just a form of another form of child for Sung, who, of course, we learn in Picard actually has a biological child of his own as well. Um, but it's kind of interesting. You always have these kind of stories of the, the creature trying to return to the, to the creator 
uh, I suppose in, in the way that, you know, you might say people look to God or look to, you know, whoever it is that they feel created by to, to understand something about themselves. And you get that, of course, in Picard as well with the, the kind of wild goose chase to try and find Maddox. It sort of felt like that was going to be a search for the creator. And then in fact, at the end of the season, we find Sung instead. And Sung is the kind of mad scientist creator who can sort of give some of those answers and play that sort of paternal role, um, for those synths, just as the, previous Sung played for those augments in Enterprise. Well, the interesting thing about uh, the Sung in Enterprise is that he didn't want to be an absentee father. He was actually imprisoned. So it wasn't, he wanted to be that father. He wanted to oversee their development and he was with them as they were growing up. He was their father. And then once they reunite and he starts to see what they are doing, he becomes the father even more is like, no, this is not what I taught you. You don't kill innocents. What are you doing? And he ends up, you know, turning against them because they have gone down a path that he can't bring them back from. So he actually does the most fatherly thing he can do, and that's stop them. But it's, it's, he, and it's interesting because he's not a likable character, but he is in some parts a sympathetic character because you know, what do you imagine the mother of a serial killer and how she feels about what her child has done and thinks about what she could have done to stop it, all of those things. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's a tricky line for assume to walk. And it's shortly after that that he decides, oh, well, maybe I should stop looking at biological life forms and start thinking about artificial life forms as a teaser to what a future soon will do. In that sort of classic enterprise way of, you know, <laughs> tipping their hats to, wink, <laughs> to wink, the next generation folks. onwards. I know. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. I mean, you're right, actually, all three of those Sung characters have this moment of kind of ambivalence, which is almost mm-hmm. a, a reversal or an analog or, or actually it's, it's, it's almost a kind of reenactment of what happens in Frankenstein where the creator creates the creature, sees the creature, is horrified by the creature and immediately regrets and repents and kind of says, you know, oh my God, what have I done? Or words to those effect, to that effect. And all three versions of uh, of Sung, you know, all three Sungs basically have some, some kind of element of that because in Brothers, you have Law, who we've kind of established Law is the evil twin. Law is just, mm-hmm. you know, a bad egg. Uh, Sung doesn't see him that way. Sung is much more sympathetic to Law. Sung thinks that Law has been misjudged, uh, that circumstances have pushed him in that direction. Just as we on reading the novel Frankenstein might think the creature has been misjudged and has been kind of pushed down a certain path by circumstances beyond his control and so on. Uh, arguments which carry almost no weight with Frankenstein who created him, but mm-hmm. as the reader uh, land much more kind of significantly. But in Brothers, you know, Data seems a bit sceptical about this, but actually Sung is the one sort of saying, Law is not as bad as you think. Then, of course, Law proves he is as bad as they think because he, uh, you know, um, tricks everyone, steals the emotion chip and attacks Sung. Mm-hmm. So Sung kind of learns his lesson in that sense. Um, the Sung in Enterprise is very much defending his 
children as he sees them and then as you say a bit like the, the parent of a serial killer ultimately has to turn against them because he realizes how dangerous they are and again the singing picard is kind of defending them and kind of going along with them up to a certain point and then he basically kind of has to acknowledge they've gone too far you know now they're going to wipe out all human organic life in the galaxy or whatever okay that's <laughs> crossed the line there uh clearly that you know he's going to have to kind of um sort of cut them off or, or kind of turn his back on them to some extent. So it is interesting that in all of these stories, there's an element of that is played out. Obviously in the novel Frankenstein, it happens almost instantaneously. And with these various Sung characters, it happens much more gradually and much more reluctantly because like any parent, uh, it takes them a while to get to that point and to be willing to make that decision because there's so much working against it. You know, if they see themselves as fathers to these uh, creations, which all three of them do, it's quite hard to get that far that you actually, you know, turn your back on your own child. Yeah, well, it's it's something inherent in a parent, inherent in a parent, that they don't want to believe the worst of their children, which is why parents who end up having children who are bullies often do not believe that their child is a bully, unless they're absolutely confronted with an example of that. And you know, it's it's very it's just difficult for a parent to believe that their creation can go wrong, whether that creation is an artificial life form or your biological child. It doesn't matter that parent still has the ultimate unending faith that their kid's going to somehow be better than they are. So in a lot of times they are blind to the sins of those children until sometimes until it's too late. It's interesting when you talk about the sins of the children, it also, what came to my mind was uh, David Marcus in Star Trek Three, yes. who again, I think you could say, has touches of that kind of Frankenstein mm. uh, character. And arguably even Carol Marcus in The Wrath of Khan, though I don't feel they're really pushing that button so much in that film, but there is a sense of what they're doing. You know, they're creating life out of death, almost life out of lifelessness. They are doing something that McCoy basically implies is blasphemous. You know, mm-hmm. he, he says, oh, in the Bible, they said it, it took three days and here you can do it in, uh, you know, three seconds or whatever, whatever the line is. Three minutes, um, I think. There said. is that three minutes, right. Okay. You, you know, there is that sort of sense they're doing something that may be not just scientifically, uh, incredible, but going too far, you, you know, that they're kind of overreaching. And when it comes to David in Star Trek three, we find out that he mixed in the whatever it, what is it? Proto matter or he, he diddled the science in some kind of immoral way, just in the same way as you might say, you know, Frankenstein grave robbing for his science is not really acceptable any more than like the mm-hmm. crew of the Equinox using those aliens for their propulsion technology or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of struck me, you know, maybe even beyond these stories of like creating a creature and the kind of, uh, typically a kind of mechanical creature. I mean, it usually is played out as a kind of, either a cyborg or a kind of, uh, in some cases, an android, you know, something that is on the boundary of the human and the machine. Um, and when we get to Roger Corby, you know, Roger Corby has this kind of crisis because he's downloaded himself into this android body and then ultimately isn't quite sure if he's a man or a machine. And so uh, he, you know, basically destroys himself as a result of being unable to, unlike Picard, he seems quite you know, laid back about it, uh, unable to sort of reconcile that. But so, so you've got those kind of stories where there's a sort of explicit parallel in so far as they're creating a kind of human-ish, but not really human being. Uh, but more broadly, I suppose we could say 
any story, and there are many in science fiction and indeed in Star Trek, where you have a scientist kind of pushing the boundaries of what can be done, possibly going a little bit too far, making that sort of Promethean reach, uh, ultimately is indebted to Frankenstein to some extent. Um, and, and that's one of the ways, I suppose, in which some people would argue Mary Shelley created science fiction because she created one of the major tropes of science fiction. Oh, yes. There are many people who argue that she created science fiction. And honestly, that particular caveat also extends to not necessarily a Frankenstein story, because if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm pretty sure that I am, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when they're having the peace talks finally at Camp Kittimer to work out, you know, admitting the Klingons into the Federation and what that's going to entail, entail, you hear the president of the Federation speaking and he says, you know, just because we can do a thing, it doesn't automatically follow that we should do a thing. And I, you know, I, it's out of context. We have no idea what it's necessarily in relation to, but you know, that's, that's, a common refrain that keeps popping up in science fiction, especially Jurassic Park. Yeah. Happened in Jurassic Park, too. Ian Malcolm's like, yeah, you were so busy trying to find out if you could do this thing, you never thought about whether you should. So it's a common refrain. And it's also, it's almost kind of tied in with this idea of the Prime Directive, I think, in Star mm-hmm. Trek. I mean, you, you pointed out earlier, when Star Trek adapts these stories, they're complicated by the fact that sometimes they have to be coerced. I mean, Belana in prototype has to be kidnapped before she agrees to create this being, even though she actually wants to. I mean, the, the, uh, Android asks her to, she's quite up for it. She goes and talks to Janeway about it. And Janeway says, no, sorry, you're not doing this. Uh, this is, this is not acceptable. Uh, you know, Janeway expresses that kind of Starfleet caution, which is exactly what sort of underpins the Prime Directive, kind of saying, yes, Mm -hmm. it may sound like a good idea. It might sound like you're doing this person a favour or this species a favour or whatever, but we can't predict what the outcome of this is going to be. Therefore, we have to err on the side of caution and kind of err on the side of not doing the thing, which is very much the opposite of this kind of, as you say, this this sort of sci-fi trope of, you know, that we see in Jurassic Park of we can make dinosaurs, let's make dinosaurs, you know. Um, (laughs) Starfleet is kind of geared towards trying to pull, you know, put the brakes on that. Um, And that in itself is quite interesting. I mean, there there is an argument, I think, to be made that Star Star Trek can be quite almost anti-technological. I mean, often you see these episodes where there's a kind of technological leap forward and the episode seems to be kind of pushing against that somehow, you, you know, trying to, uh, even something like the ultimate computer, you, you know, uh, actually we don't want the ultimate computer. The ultimate computer turns out not to be as great as, as everyone thought it was. Do you know what I mean? This kind of idea <laughs> is almost kind of not exactly technophobic, but kind of very cautious, slightly, almost slightly kind of Luddite sensibility. You've got a character like McCoy who is absolutely, uh, you know, um, kind of encapsulating that idea of sticking to the traditional, you know, tried and tested way of doing things. Don't get caught up in the excitement of the the new and the kind of um, thrill of the new. Star Trek, I think, always sort of has to walk that line. So you have a character like Janeway, who's always thrilled to be inventing something or creating something or doing the science or coming up with a new, a new technology or a new uh, system or whatever. But then there's always this kind of 
there's always some kind of pushback. There's always some kind of downside. Even with Discovery, I guess, something like the Spore Drive. I mean, you know, this incredible technology they've invented, but there has to be a sort of problem with it. There has to be a, a, a moral quandary when they're dealing with the tardigrade. There has to be a kind of human cost when it's Stamets doing it and kind of sending himself mad in the process. Um, th- th- these, I suppose, this idea that, you know, when you push a little bit too far, something pushes back. And see, that's the thing. The There are always dangers to technology. There are always ways that it could be used for ill. And so you have to weigh the consequences of, okay, what if we invent this and it was used as a weapon? Do the uh, pros outweigh the cons? That's uh, something that has to happen with every single technological advancement and sometimes people don't really consider the cons maybe as much as they should maybe they think it's for the greater good but it's it turns out not being so much so there's there's never a 100 percent this is only used for good there Mm. unfortunately humans can find a way to corrupt absolutely anything so you just you have to walk that line between okay is this a good enough idea that the problems that it causes are going to be outweighed by the problems that it solves? And who gets to decide that? <laughs> and I guess that's the thing, is that as much as Star Trek is science fiction, Star Trek is also morality plays in space. And so ultimately, if there's a conflict between kind of scientific development and ethics or morality, Star Trek is going to come down on the side of morality, even if it's something like, I suppose, uh, Bruce Maddox wanting to disassemble data to make more datas, which is a very, sci- you know, that's the scientist's approach, isn't it? That's kind of, you know, okay, I can take this thing apart. I can reverse engineer it. I can kind of uh, advance our understanding of cybernetics uh, by doing this. Star Trek is coming in saying, actually, hold on. Uh, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe you need to not do that and just, you know, go back to your drawing board and work slowly for many decades on whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, don't try to kind of leapfrog um, the progress that you should be making at the expense of someone else. Exactly. Yeah. Good old Star Trek. Well, that's that seems like a relatively optimistic note to end on, despite this slightly gloomy (laughs) (laughs) and dark and as you say gothic uh subject matter um thank you so much for joining me brandy uh if our listeners want to hear some more of your thoughts on on star trek or on anything else even uh or if they want to contact you on social media what's the best way for them to do that and where can they find you Okay, um, get out your pens and, and paper, kids. This is a list. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy spelled with an I. 12 is a number. You can find me lurking over in the uh, listeners lounge at We Made Treks. You can find that on Facebook. And it is going to undergo a name change soon. So depending on wh- when this comes out, you might also find it by typing in the Nexus. So you can find me over there. You can find me on the We Made Treks network doing two podcasts. The first is the Vedic Assembly, which is a Deep Space Nine podcast I do with my friends Liam and Nick, formerly of The Edge over at Trek FM. And I am also doing a podcast called Boldly Go, a Strange New Worlds podcast with my friend Suzanne Williamson, also previously uh, of Trek FM. so, yeah, there's a bunch of new Trek stuff going on over there. Come and check it all out. Just look for We Made Treks on Facebook, and you'll find links to everything. 
also the We Made Treks uh, Twitter thread. You'll find all that stuff, too. And then I do a podcast with my husband, Dave, called The Dark Corner Podcast, where we talk about things from a gloomier perspective. <laughs> but uh, it's it's not all gloom and doom like you might expect. We're actually very happy people. We're, we're chipper people. And uh, I also do a podcast by myself called Headcanon, where you can walk through my brain with me and wander down many a tangent lane about the many fandoms that I enjoy. You can find both of those at darkcornerpodcast.net. No, excuse me, darkcornerpodcast.com. <laughs> I know my own web address. I do. And I think that's it for the moment. <sighs> okay. Wow, that is, uh, you're right. That is quite the, uh, the, an info dump of, um, of, of places to find you. But I mean, I don't know how you find the energy to do all of that. I find doing one podcast, uh, once a fortnight is more than enough work for me. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Brandy. Uh, but talking about Frankenstein and bringing life to inanimate matter and other such grisly topics is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL, I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL, and I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic, and then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual, but like you said, she kind of talks to that. And but now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural, but at the time it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive, mm-hmm. and he goes and picks up McCoy, and Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run of no, Then they go and find the Nexus and get and get <laughs> Kirk back and it's the three of them that go. Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well to help out Spock with reunification. Yeah. And then they go to the Genesis planet because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up and they find some Spock DNA and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only like six inches tall. <laughs> pocket yes. Spock. And, and McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. And like, but he's, call so him, McCoy love he's that? got a, yeah. a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this, a breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket <laughs> in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with with Q, and having all those play on Q basically. Oh, yeah. Which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that. And and when they had Here Harry Mud, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheap. I mean, that is, as I say, there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. I, um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial... But your your memories have been transferred. How much of who you are is the memory that you acquire 
over the course of your life and how much of it is the biological system of your body. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.